A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. On a drizzly June morning in 1982, the silhouette of a man was seen hanging, partly submerged in the River Thames, from the underside of Blackfriars Bridge, right in the heart of London's busy financial district. Initially, this tragic occurrence looked like someone had decided to end their own life, but on closer inspection, the body held some strange clues to its demise. Was this man there because he'd decided to kill himself, or had he been murdered? Grab a pen and a notebook and a bottle of detangling conditioner, because this one is about to get as entangled as they get. Today on Macabre London, we uncover the story of Roberto Calvi, God's banker. Friars Bridge in the city has stood marrying the two banks of the Thames since the 1760s. The original bridge was a toll bridge, but thanks to some riots which destroyed the toll booths in 1780, the crossing has been free ever since. The incarnation of the bridge, which stands today, was finished in 1869 and coincided with the building and renovation of many of London's original bridges, which were in danger of collapse with their increased usage and also their poor construction using inferior materials, but during the Industrial Revolution, London was only as strong as its bridges. If materials couldn't be moved across them, then things couldn't be built, and as such, the sturdy bridge became a staple of the Thames Vista. However, I doubt when these feats of engineering were built that anyone ever envisioned their strength would be used to reliably hang a body from... On June the 18th, 1982, a postal worker was on his way to work when he discovered a corpse hanging from Blackfriars Bridge. The orange cord that had been used as a noose was in stark contrast to the gloomy grey of the morning, the grey suit that was worn by the deceased, and the cold steel of the scaffolding he was dangling from partly submerged in the equally grey water of the Thames. 
The young man who was startled by this horrifying discovery alerted the police, and it wasn't long before they arrived, seemingly expecting to just be dealing with an albeit tragic, but standard, suicide. Once the body had been removed from its very public position, the police began the process of identifying the man, and luckily this was very easy. In his pockets, they immediately found identification for him. A passport was in his pocket, which bore the name Gian Roberto Calvini, but that's not all the authorities uncovered. He also had over £10,000 in his pockets in various different currencies, but also, rather strangely, his suit jacket and trouser pockets were filled with smashed up bricks, seemingly used to act as weights to perhaps quicken the inevitable when he jumped from the scaffold under the bridge. Now with a name, the police had the difficult job of working out exactly who this poor man was, and how he'd found his way to London, and furthermore, why he'd decided to take his own life in such an odd fashion. To begin with, they called the Italian embassy and told them what had happened. On hearing the name Calvini, the person on the phone said they thought they knew who it was and came to inspect the body. When they arrived, they identified the body as 62-year-old Roberto Calvi, not Gian Calvini, a made-up name which was on the fake passport he had in his pocket, and said Calvi had gone missing 24 hours earlier from his home in Milan. When the body was inspected by the forensic pathologist, the plot thickened. The strange way in which Calvi had committed suicide was unlike anything he'd ever seen before. His neck hadn't been damaged from the fall he would have had to endure from the scaffold, and his vertebrae were all still intact. Something which was impossible given the supposed cause of death. The body was also found partly submerged in the river, but that was very odd, as the rope wasn't long enough to have stretched from his supposed jumping-off point. The marks that were also found on his neck didn't quite match up with the cause of death. The strange way in which Calvi had supposedly committed suicide was unlike anything the pathologist had ever seen before, and as such, he raised the alarm with the authorities, saying that he suspected Calvi was murdered. But this fell on deaf ears. But why would someone go to such extreme lengths to make this death look like a suicide? For that, we have to work backwards to find out exactly who Roberto Calvi was and why someone may have wanted him dead. Born on the 13th of April 1920, Roberto Calvi was always destined to work in the business of finance. Even though his family had come from humble beginnings in the Italian countryside, Roberto was born in the bustling Milan. His father was a bank manager, and despite Roberto himself trying to edge away from this inevitable career with a stint in the military, it wasn't long before he found himself walking through the doors of Banco Ambrosiano, where he would continue to work for the next 35 years. Roberto worked his way up through the ranks at the bank, starting as a humble clerk, progressing all the way through the ranks to chairman by 1975. Ambrosiano in and of itself was a strange organisation that had some very odd rules, which had been set in stone ever since its inception in 1896. The bank started out life as a private moral-led organisation in terms of the Catholic religion, and to reflect the intention behind the organisation, was named after the 4th century Saint Ambrose. 
The bank operated so strictly to this code of conduct that in order to bank with them, you had to prove your religious validity by providing a certificate of your baptism. With such a strong moral compass, the bank became the place for priests and other religious officials to rest their money in their accounts, and with that became known as God's Bank, and the workers God's Bankers, particularly Calvi, who was the head honcho. With such a strong link to religion, it was only a matter of time before the inextricable link between money, religion and the politics which governed Italy were going to take hold of the bank, and so began the weaving of a web which would ultimately lead to Calvi's death. In the 1970s, Calvi's business relationships extended to the Vatican Bank, and as such, he became friendly with his equivalent there, Paul Marcinkus. Marcinkus was the antithesis of Calvi. Where Calvi was narrow-shouldered and average height with a thick moustache, and his character was said to be secretive and quietly arrogant, Marcinkus was six foot five, outgoing, constantly smoking cigars, and due to his stature, was often jokingly referred to as the Pope's bodyguard. However, the bodyguard did step into action when in 1970, on a trip to the Philippines, someone tried to assassinate the Pope by stabbing him, but Marcinkus stepped in to save him, throwing the attacker out of the way. Both Calvi and Marcinkus were very loyal to the Pope. After all, they had to be. Marcinkus was employed by the Vatican, and Calvi, who had the largest private bank, didn't dare step out of line in fear of repercussions. Both of the holy bankers found themselves being at the papal beck and call, and most importantly, his financial direction. Now, for those of you that don't know anything about the Vatican, in very simple terms is a state within Rome which the Pope lives in. It has a border of around two miles, and it's protected 24-7 by an army of Swiss guards. It has a population of around a thousand people. But interestingly, no one has ever been born there due to its lack of hospital, and probably due to the fact that the last count, only 32 women lived inside its walls. So it's essentially a country filled with celibate men. It also has its own TV channels, postal service, passports, radio station, and even a football team. It also happens to be a state where you're not allowed to vote. The Pope is elected by the College of Cardinals, and guess what? Women aren't allowed to join that group, so it's one of the last places in the world where women don't have the vote. But neither do the men, really, apart from a select few. Anyway, back to the banks. Marcinkus had been in talks with the Pope about how the church could grow and expand across the world, and asked if he could be of use with his banking skills. And as a matter of fact, the Pope had just been approached by the Pope of Poland, who was in some financial difficulty. The expansion of the church was the ultimate goal, but Poland needed monetary help in order to grow. Marcinkus asked Calvi if he could help by passing money through the Vatican Bank, and paying them a higher interest rate, which the Vatican Bank could then use to give money to Poland, amongst other projects they wanted to pay for. Ostensibly, this was money laundering and fraud. Marcinkus and Calvi knew if they moved money around both of their respective banks, they were away from the consequences the Italian government could place upon them, and as such, would be able to continue to build their cash piles without being scrutinised, or more importantly, taxed upon it, as moving money in the name of religion wouldn't be questioned. This ruse went undiscovered for quite some time, or at least people were kept silent enough with payoffs to not blab about the illegal activities. But after the Vatican Bank sidled into a deal with another Italian bank who they then forcibly liquidated, 
Cowie found himself caught in the crossfire. The owner of the liquidated bank asked Cowie for a bailout to save his banks, but due to his involvement with the Vatican Bank and Marchinkus, Cowie couldn't help him. Spited and now penniless, the owner of the liquidated bank decided to slyly place some banners in the centre of Milan, which called out Calvi's shady behaviours. With the mounting pressure placed upon him, Calvi was at a breaking point. He was now under threat from Marcinkus and the Vatican Bank, as if he was to reveal their involvement in the various plots they had amassed, the whole web of deceit would be blown wide open, and the church would be ruined. Alongside all of the tax evasion and other money laundering, there was also the church's involvement with Poland. Both the Italian and Polish Pope were anti-communist, and the general funding which the both banks had been providing definitely played a part in the political persuasions and power it held, and also contributed to the fall of communism in Poland and Eastern Europe as a whole later on down the line. However, with Calvi now being on trial for his financial crimes, he was starting to wonder when he might receive his pardon from the Pope, but the day never came, as if it did, the church would be basically telling the world they were just as guilty as Calvi. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Roberto was given a suspended sentence of four years and only served a short time in prison, during which time he half-heartedly attempted suicide, but he was also fined almost £14 million for his unauthorised transfers, which reached in excess of £19 million. Despite this, Calvi was actually allowed to keep his position at the bank and return to work after his short stint in prison, but this was only the tip of the iceberg. In total, Calvi and the Vatican were instrumental in embezzling over 550 million in total from their banks, but that was still something that only Calvi knew the full extent of. Calvi had the bargaining chips, and it was now up to the church and the secret societies they employed to either reward him for his silence or to remove him from the equation. Growing more and more disillusioned with his sacrifice to save the church without any reward and with his bank on the brink of collapse, Calvi now knew that he had been scapegoated by the Vatican. As a last-ditch attempt, Calvi wrote directly to the Pope. His letter explained how, if he didn't receive help for his failing bank, he would blow the whole corruption ring wide open, which didn't just include the church. It also covered a multitude of authority figures from the world of politics and would also reveal the links they held with the darker mafia. However, his letter was met with radio silence. 
but we can only imagine that the threat didn't go unnoticed. In the failing months of Calvi's bank, he fell in with a rough crowd. He befriended supposed businessmen who had one foot either side of the legal line. They also had links to the mafia. Calvi tried to garner support and protection from these dangerous individuals in his fight against the church, but all this did was drag him into even more problems. As little did he know, these individuals were also being paid to keep an eye on him, to make sure he didn't talk too much about his dodgy dealings. Flavio Carboni became Calvi's right-hand man and vowed to help him overcome his financial difficulties as he was well-connected and reassured him that he had nothing to be worried about. In order to escape the building pressure in Italy, Roberto had a plan which could potentially solve his problems. If he could get to Switzerland, where he had stashed some money, he could return back to Italy to bail out his bank. Calvi couldn't travel out of Italy without being noticed, so in order to go undercover, he asked one of his new dodgy friends to get him a fake passport, and he left with Carboni, his supposed protector. He also decided, in an act of disguise, to shave off his moustache so he was less recognisable. But upon his person, he carried a briefcase which held all the documents which would implicate those that had been caught up in the dodgy dealings in Italy. The pair began to drive to Switzerland, but when they were almost there, Carboni, for some unknown reason, persuaded Calvi to abandon the plan and head to London. Carboni told Calvi he had a much better chance of securing the money from investors there, as opposed to potentially being caught on their way back from Switzerland with millions stuffed in the boot of the car. Meanwhile, things were starting to collapse back in Milan. At the Bank of Ambrosiano, Calvi's disappearance hadn't gone unnoticed. The board of the bank voted for voluntary insolvency, and Calvi was fired in his absence. Upon hearing the news, Calvi's secretary, who had worked with him for the whole time he was the chairman, apparently committed suicide by throwing herself from the window in her office, leaving a note behind blaming Calvi for the bank's insolvency and her death as a result. Perhaps scared she would be implicated for her involvement in the shady operations, or perhaps she knew too much and was pushed. Now in London, Calvi had been left to his own devices by Carboni, who had returned to Italy, but upon his arrival, Roberto was incredibly displeased with the cheap hotel Carboni had booked for him, as he said it was lacking in security. Instead of just fixing things over the phone, Carboni flew over to London to rectify his mistake. A person staying at the hotel reported seeing Calvi leaving the hotel with two younger Italian men, and that was the last time he was seen alive. When Calvi's body was discovered by the police, they had no option but to rule it as a suicide. However, all the evidence pointed to the contrary. The fact the suicide had happened in London made it separated from the events in Milan, which already made it very difficult to investigate the case fully. Also, when Calvi was in prison, he had made a failed attempt to take his own life, which only helped to solidify the ruling of suicide. But Calvi's family knew the truth, or at least had big suspicions around what had happened to him. The family fought to overrule the suicide verdict and managed to get it overturned by the end of 1983. But it wouldn't be until 2002 that the evidence was proven this was the case. Calvi's body was exhumed in order for forensics to properly check him over, 
and with the posthumous inspection, a theory was delivered by the forensic pathologist. Calvi had been told he would be moved out of London by boat, and so he willingly went with the two Italians that arrived at his hotel. Once he was in the boat, one of the men grotted him and tied a noose around his neck before they stopped by the scaffolding and used the noose to pull him up onto it. They then left him dangling in the water where he either passed away or he was already dead when he was strung up. With a verdict of murder, this at least gave the family some peace, but there was still no responsible party that owned up to Calvi's death. Furthermore, the briefcase that contained all those valuable and incriminating documents Calvi had with him in London also happened to just disappear. With Roberto threatening to out the whole of Italy's elite, it was no wonder he was made a mark and taken out. Supposedly those in positions of power paid the mafia to silence him in order to save their own skins. After all, with Calvi dead, the bank liquidated and the documents destroyed, there was no evidence left which would incriminate the other involved parties. The game was over. It wasn't until 2003, 21 years later after the murder, that the Calvi family received any kind of justice. Even though they'd effectively been told Roberto was murdered, no one up until this point was sentenced for the crime. Perhaps not so shockingly, Carboni was the prime suspect, along with five others which were said to have either carried out the plot or been instrumental in its execution. However, with the insufficient evidence available after such a long period of time, all of the supposed perpetrators were acquitted, and when the case was reopened again in 2010, the same ruling was passed. Even as recently as 2016, the trial was still ongoing, but as the case was so cold, the evidence still insufficient and the silence of those who were involved, and overarchingly the Vatican, led to the case being unsolved. Calvi's case, which began as a grab for power, ultimately left him scapegoated by those he thought he would soon be ingratiated with. He was used to help make others richer, and when the time came when he threatened to expose their underhanded behaviour, he was murdered to stop a tidal wave of corruption being leaked, which would ultimately change the world. At one point, Calvi was perhaps the most powerful man in the whole of Italy, but ultimately he would never be more powerful than God. After all, when it comes to a game of life or death, the house always wins. Phew, that was quite the tricky one to keep up with, wasn't it? I must admit, at points when researching this one, I definitely felt like I needed a pinboard and some red thread to keep track of what was going on, so I hope that you managed to keep up. As always, please let me know your thoughts about this case in the comments below on YouTube or on my social media if you're listening to the podcast. If you'd like to help me make more of these, then please consider becoming a patron, like our executive Patreon producers Sam, Barry, Sarah and Veronica, and all of our other patrons too. And thank you as well if you've given a one-off donation recently. There's been quite a few of you and, you know, you keep on popping out the woodwork and it's just so nice to know that you're supporting the show and you want to see more, so thanks very much for that. You can help support the show on Patreon from as little as $1 a month and $5 tiers and up get access to exclusive content over there, like the next episode of Weird Things I Find in Old Newspapers, which will be going up there in a few days. 
So sign up now if you'd like to get involved in that and you'll also get some tangible goodies sent through the post too. Also, if you're new here and you've stuck all the way around to this point, then please do me a huge favour by subscribing as it'd be great to have you join the ghoul gang. Thanks for joining me for another macabre tale from London's past. I've been Nikki Drees and I'll see you ghouls next time. Good afternoon and welcome to the fifth annual presentation of the Golden Cleric. Every year, the Catholic Church gives an award to a priest for outstanding achievement. This year's winner is someone who's overcome controversy in the past when rumours of financial irregularities threatened his career in the future. No, 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 no! But following a fair investigation, no formal charges were ever made against him. But he was just resting in my account. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.